How many know having a tough time with a man that size behind closed doors <laughs> means I'm either really brave or really stupid, <laughs> or he's really forgiving, which is also really nice. So how you guys doing this morning? Good. It is uh, just a joy for me to be up here and share with part three of At The Movies, but Pastor and the team have told me we've got cable viewers, we've got online viewers, we've got folks who may be listening to a CD, so would you give it up to them one time? Just we're grateful that you've chosen to spend part of your Sunday here with us. Um, and again, just to echo, I know Pastor Derek said some nice things to really make me relax and feel comfortable. All of it was probably not true, but compliments are great. And they cause people to feel comfortable real quick. Um, I just want to return uh, the honor to him. He's a, an amazing leader, and you guys know that. Um, him, he and his family, he and Stacy, are just incredible leaders. But here's what's great about them. They don't just try to lead. Right? Before they try to lead anybody, they're listening and they're learning, um, both in their personal walk with Jesus, but really listening and learning about the people they're leading. So that's what really makes them effective. And I've seen it up close, and I've seen him in tough situations with me, with others, and he's just... I mean, the guy's got more muscles than I, his muscles have muscles at this point. Um, and I've said this before, and the biggest muscle in the man's body is his heart, and he's just an incredible man. So if you guys are grateful for your pastor, if you love your pastor and his family, would you clap one last time? We love you. Um, I like to say that, you know, outside of my own family, my blood family, I'm a functional human being because of his. So um, he is a great, great man. So speaking of my family, we've got um, a shot of my family. That'll show up on the screen in a minute. Um, the anticipation is really good. <laughs> it's my good side, you know, it's really cool um, about that. But that's my wife, Lilia. Um, she's here as well in the front. And whew, you didn't know I was a lucky man before because I survived tough interactions with him behind closed doors. <laughs> you see my wife and you know I'm a lucky man. Um, she's prettier on the inside than she is on the out. Um, those are my two kids, or our two kids, they're not mine, she knows them as well, they're our kids. Um, she did most of the work. Um, man, that's Willow Grace um, sitting next to me, she just turned three last week, she is just, she defines personality if you get to interact with her, and then my, my dude, Jeremiah Daniel, is nine months um, sitting on Lily's lap, so that's, that's my family. Um, they are an amazing, amazing blessing. So um, we can get the picture away. I'm going to cry. I don't want to do that. Um, but that's them. Um, and it's just crazy. And when you have, you know, to get that picture taken, right? Do you have any idea what went into that? It was like bribes, foul language, anger, <laughs> like just, and that was just what Lilia was saying to get me out of bed. It was just, it was a long, long morning. But everyone told us before we have kids that time's going to fly. You know, time flies, you'll see, and you say, okay, great, but it really does, doesn't it? I mean, how many can believe it's already almost Christmas? Holy cow, they should put it on the calendar so we know it's coming. <laughs> or maybe decorate a store or something or give us some, some, some hint. It's just nuts. Every year we're always surprised, right? How many have your shopping done? All right, we hate you strongly. We'll get prayer afterwards. We'll deal with it. But wow, tell us your secrets, right? Someone in the crowd first service yelled out Amazon. Thank goodness for Amazon Prime. <laughs> but it is a crazy, crazy time. But it's one of my favorite seasons. Everyone loves this time. It's just, it's amazing, right? It's nothing like sitting on the couch watching a Hallmark movie at Christmas time. They're all out. Uh, home Alone. It's a you know, Christmas story. Um, elf. Buddy the Elf, right? I almost dressed like Buddy the Elf, but Pastor Derek said that wouldn't be a good idea. So I'm wearing this. <laughs> um, but today, for part three of At The Movies, I get to talk to you about one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, George Bailey, and a lot of, it's one of the most popular Christmas movies ever. Uh, when it was in the box office, it actually was a failing movie. But over time, it's become such a tradition that it's one of the most popular Christmas movies of all time, and I am excited that I get to pick some truth out of that. And here's why I love At The Movies, right? Truth is God's truth no matter where it's found. If you find it in scripture, it's clear that it's God's. But if you find it in a movie or a magazine or in a conversation, if it's truth, it's God's truth. So what an awesome thing to be able to leverage culture in the movies we watch so often. Find truth in them and apply it to our life. Two weeks ago, Pastor Mark talking about Les Mis and, and the truth of grace. Just the change that grace can bring about in our own lives, but also what it can do when we extend it to others. Just grace is an amazing thing. And then last week, Pastor Derek talked about Schindler's List. And you could hear everyone in the room go, What? When he said Schindler's List, we didn't know what to expect. But to be able to pull the truth out of Oscar Schindler's story and realize that there is an unforgettable Savior that sees us as invaluable 
and worth the blood of Jesus. What an awesome thing to walk away from last week. So it's just a great, great thing, and I'm excited to try to pull some truth out of a, It's a Wonderful Life so we can leave here different. Amen? Let's pray together before we jump in. God, thank you so much, first and foremost, for the opportunity to speak to your people. I pray that these would not be my words, but this would instead be something you'd want to say to one person in this place, maybe more, but I believe there is one person in here that you want to leave differently, not because they heard from a preacher, but because they encountered a God who is real and cannot be confused with this life, but a God who is constant. God, may you take over and continue what you've already started with our worship service this morning. And I look forward to the testimonies and stories that will come from folks, not giving me compliments, but talking about how you've changed them from the inside out. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. 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 Well, let's jump in. We've got our first clip, but here's the deal, right? George Bailey grew up in Bedford Falls. Um, if you've seen the movie, you kind of know what's going on. But in the first clip, George and his wife, Mary, are, George is coming home to Mary in their honeymoon suite. They've just been married, and they're coming home during clip one to his honeymoon. This is the company's posters, and the company won't like this. How would you like to get a ticket next week? You got any romance in you? Sure, I had it, but I got rid of it. Liver pills. Who wants to see liver pills on your honeymoon? What we want is romantic places, beautiful places, places George wants to go. Hey, Bert! Here he comes! Come on, we gotta get this up. He's coming. Who? The room, idiot. This is their honeymoon. Come on, get that ladder. What are they, ducks? All right, all right. All right, all right. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. I'm hurrying. Hiya, uh, good George at the end of the, their interaction saying wonderful and the truth of this movie is it's a wonderful life the challenge for you and I and the big idea for today is when we find truth 
Are we willing to make the changes necessary so that that truth is later found in us? And in that moment, surrounded by leaks, broken windows, posters, just things that you and I would never want to see happen to our home, George is overheard just saying, wonderful, it's wonderful. Not because of the circumstances around him, but because of the people he's surrounded by. It's a wonderful life. That house, and you heard Mary allude to it. Do you remember throwing rocks at this old house when we were kids? They'd walk by that house all the time, and it was an abandoned home. One that they'd stop, throw rocks, break windows, kind of shatter. It was neglected and left. And Mary says, what I wished for was that this would be our house when we got married. And it's amazing to me to see in that moment, and it's trivial, and well, it's a movie, isn't that cute? But the reality is, it's a wonderful life. The difference between you and I in that place and George is that we get consumed by what's around us. And the last thing we would use sometimes is the word wonderful when we would describe our life. And I don't want to ruin anything for you guys, but that's the kind of spread I come home to each day with Lilia. And game hens over a fire and stuff like that. <laughs> but in that moment, George is just muttering to himself, it's wonderful. But as you watch the movie and it progresses and you fast forward some years, on Christmas Eve, George is in a very, very, very different place. He's still in Bedford Falls, but he's at the end of himself wondering if the world would have been better off if he'd never been born. I don't think it's a circumstance that in that moment he's alone. The honeymoon scene, he's surrounded by friends. He's reminded of the life, lives that he's touched. But in the moment where he's at the end of himself, wondering if the world's better without him, he's by himself. He's confused. He's angry. He's emotional. And there's been a series of events that have happened that have led him to this place where he's run away from everything he holds dear, found himself alone in thinking thoughts that he probably never would have thought in that moment. Prayers are sent up for George. He prays himself, and God sends Clarence. Angel second class to save George's life and earn his angel wings. But we've all been that place, in that place, right? Where we've run from everything we hold dear. We find ourselves alone and we find ourselves thinking things we probably never would have thought if we had just stayed in the situation. I know for me, I've been there, whether it's conf- whatever it is, a, a series of events in my life, a series of events in your life lead us to a point where we run. We vacate that situation. We vacate that circumstance. Maybe we stay physically, but we vacate it emotionally. The second you and I are isolated or alone, we're susceptible to thinking thoughts like, maybe the world would be better if we weren't here. Maybe my kids would be better off with a different parent. Maybe my wife would be better off without me. My job doesn't matter. I don't matter. And we find ourselves in a very, very dangerous place. And I don't think it's a a coincidence that when I'm there, or when I've been there in my life, or you're there, we're probably alone. We're probably isolated, physically or emotionally. And here's another, here's another piece of truth that I wrestle with in those moments, right? I believe, no matter what's around me, I believe that God's intention for my life is that no matter what I'm surrounded by, I'd always describe my life as wonderful. God's intention for my life is that no matter what is surrounding me, I'd always describe it as wonderful. There's a verse we'll pick up later, but in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about long before we first heard of Christ, he had designs on us for glorious living. The thing I wrestle with often is that that scripture and my reality are often very far apart. If God's got designs on me for glorious living, why does X, Y, Z, A, B, 1, 2, and 7 stink? You're telling me God's got designs for a glorious life. I'm telling you about this. There's more bills than money. My kids don't talk to me. My wife left. My husband left. I was just laid off. I wish I had a home. (laughs) Whatever it might be, for me to stand up here and say, there's a scripture that says something positive, for me to reach you in your reality, it's really not possible. But I'm hoping that through this message, God will speak to you, not me. And that you will see that what it says in Ephesians 1 is beyond true. That God has a very different intention for your life. And there's some things we have to fight to get there and some things we have to pursue to make sure we don't leave once we're back. Here's the trap we all fall into, right? It's a wonderful life, yay, plans for glorious living. Here's the trap. Before we decide whether we would describe our life as wonderful or not, we evaluate our feelings. Everyone say feelings. Don't sing. Evaluate our feelings about the circumstances we're surrounded by rather than elevate the promises God has made us. 
Before we describe our life, we evaluate our circumstances rather than elevate the promise of God. Some of us may not know the promise of God. So we can only evaluate our circumstances. But I want to tell you the promise of God today, that no matter your circumstances, God has a different plan for your life, a plan for a glorious life, one that you would constantly say is wonderful, no matter what's leaking around you. There's a villain in this movie named Mr. Potter. Right? He's a miserable old man, right? And he's the richest man in Bedford Falls, and he owns a bank, and he's trying to make everything his. And the one thing that stands in his way is George's family business. His dad started it. It's a savings and loan. It's a small place where he mortgages, loan, mortgages, really, for the community of Bedford Falls, and they can build homes. And Mr. Potter hates that it exists. So Mr. Potter, one day in our next clip, invites George in for a conversation because he wants to have, he has an offer for George. I have stated my side very frankly. Now let's look at your side. <laughs> Young man, 27, 28, married, making, say, 40 a week. 45. 45. 45. Out of which, after supporting your mother and paying your bills, you're able to keep, say, 10 if you skimp. A child or two comes along and you won't even be able to save the 10. Now, if this young man of 28 was a common, ordinary yokel, I say he was doing fine. But George Bailey is not a common, ordinary yokel. He is an intelligent, smart, ambitious young man who hates his job, who hates the building and loan almost as much as I do. A young man who's been dying to get out on his own ever since he was born. A young man, the smartest one in the crowd, mind you. A young man who has to sit by and watch his friends go places because he's trapped. Yes, sir, trapped into frittering his life away, playing nursemaid to a lot of garlic eaters. Do I paint a correct picture or do I exaggerate? Well, what's your point, Mr. Potter? My point? My point is I want to hire you. Hire me? Yeah, I want you to manage my affairs, run my properties. George, I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. $20,000 a year? You wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town, buying your wife a lot of fine clothes. A couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you, Jones? Would I? You're not talking to somebody else around here, are you? You know, th this is me. You remember me? George Bailey. George Bailey. George Bailey, whose ship has just come in. Provided he has enough brains to climb aboard. Two things that stick out to me in that clip are when Potter says trapped. I feel like a lot of times we feel trapped. We may not like the situation we're in, but we feel trapped by it. Right? So someone standing up here saying, oh, it's all going to change is just it's nonsense. You feel trapped. And then the second thing is when George Bailey says, what's your point? And I don't believe Mr. Potter really wanted George to even take the job. I think what Mr. Potter wanted was George to leave that conversation, that interaction, doubting. Doubting that his life was wonderful. Make 40 a week, 45. George is immediately defending where he stands because he's starting to doubt. When you and I doubt, we get defensive. And then when we get defensive, we get discontent. That was Potter's point. And you may have a Mr. Potter in your life. Maybe you were raised by Mr. Potter. <laughs> Maybe you work for Mr. Potter. Maybe your family is Mr. I don't know, but I believe we're all encountering Mr. Potter's every day, whether it's a circumstance or a person. And the mission of that circumstance or person is not to make you take a job, not to make you make a change, but for you to doubt and get defensive and get discontent. That's the point. Because if you're in that place, you eventually find yourself alone and running and isolated where you're susceptible to the thoughts you never thought you'd think. That's Mr. Potter's point. But if you look at John 16, right? It says, in this world you will have troubles. What a promise from Jesus. In this world, things are going to stink. <laughs> Where do I sign? <laughs> but it says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 
But in these moments, it's hard to hear that because all we see is the leaky roof. All we see is Mr. Potter. All we hear is his seeds of doubt. And for someone to say, overcome, he's over, Jesus has overcome the world, it'll be fine. It's really hard to not focus on what's not fine. It's really hard to not focus on what's not fine. Here's the deal. We get discouraged, we despair, we get discontent, and it's real. And the worst thing we can do is ignore it, but the worst thing we can do is stay there. The problem with discontentment is it always leads us to isolation. We run, whether it's emotional or physically, we run and hide. You may be like, I haven't run. I'm still here. I'm standing strong. How's everyone around you doing? You may be emotionally gone. That's where I run first. You vacate emotionally before you ever run physically. So don't kid yourself. Just because you're still present doesn't mean you're not fighting isolation. And eventually, you get to a point where it can't just hide anymore, can't stay inside. And this may be a sensational version of, of, of what the point I'm trying to make, but in clip three, George comes home in a very different manner than he did on the honeymoon after a long day. Oh, yeah, another big red-letter day for the Baileys. Daddy, the Browns next door have a new car. You should see it. Well, what's the matter with our car? Isn't it good enough for you? Yes, Daddy. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse you for what? I burped. <laughs> All right, tell me your excuse. Now go on upstairs and see if little Zuzu wants anything. Zuzu? Well, what's the matter with Zuzu? Oh, she's got a cold. She's in bed. Caught it coming home from school. They gave her a flower for a prize, and she didn't want to crush it, so she didn't button up her coat. What, is it sore throat or what? Just a cold. The doctor says it's not The doctor? Serious. Was the doctor here? Yes, I called him right away. He said there's nothing to worry Is she about. running a temperature? What is this? Just a teensy one. 99.6. She'll be all right. Of course, it's this old house. I, I don't know why we don't all have pneumonia. The drafty old barn up place. Might well be living in a refrigerator. Why do we have to live here in the first place and stay around this measly, crummy old town? George, what's wrong? Wrong everything, Troy. You call this a happy family. Why do we have to have all these kids? Dad, how do you spell frankincense? I don't know. I asked your mother. Where are you going? Going up to see Zeus. You told me to ride a plane for tomorrow. R-A-N-K-I-N. Hi, Daddy. Well, what happened to you? I want a flower. Uh, oh, wait now, where do you think you're going? Want to give my flower a drink. All right, all right. I'll give, the, give Daddy the flower. I'll give it a drink. Now, here. Look, Daddy. Paste it. Together. There. There. Nice. Good as new. Give the flower a drink. Now, will you do something for me? What? Will you try to get some sleep? I'm not sleepy. I want to look at my flower. I know, I know. But you just go to sleep. And then you can dream about it. And it'll be a whole garden. I'm sure she'll be all right. The doctor said that she ought to be out of bed in time to have her Christmas dinner. Is that Zuzu's teacher? Yes. Let me speak. Hello. Hello, Mrs. Welsh. This is George Bailey. I'm Zuzu's father. Say, what kind of a teacher are you, anyway? What do you mean sending her home like that, half naked? You realize she'll probably end up with pneumonia on account of you? George. Is this the sort of thing we pay taxes for, to have, teacher, have teachers like you, stupid, silly, careless people, that send our kids home without any clothes on? You know, maybe my kids aren't the best dressed kids, and maybe they don't have any decent clothes. Oh, that's stupid. H hello, Mrs. Welch. I, I want to apologize. Hello? Hello? She's hung up. I'll hang her up. What is that? Hello, who's this? Oh, Mr. Welch. Okay, that's fine, Mr. Welch. Give me a chance to tell you what I really think of your wife. George, Will you George. get out and let me handle this? Hello. Hello, what? Oh, you will, huh? Okay, Mr. Welch, anytime you think you're man enough, you... Hello. 
Silly tune, yet you play it over and over again. Now stop it, stop it. Same house. Similar circumstances, better house situation, very different response. You and I have been in places where maybe we don't do that, but we, we snap a little bit. You know, excuse me for what? You know, we pretend we're trying to close our daughter's eyes, but we're really maybe smothering her just a little so she passes out. <laughs> that was Lily and not me. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> We've all been there. But it's in those moments, right, where we lose it. And George is a very different man in that moment. He's frustrated. He's lashing out. The very things that he would call blessings when he was in a place where he classified it as wonderful, he's looking at as burdens. And we've all been there. And maybe the events that George went through are different than what we go through. And there's a lot of things we encounter that put us in that place. But there's three in particular. If you're taking notes, you can number your paper one through three. There's three that I think we have to fight almost daily so we don't find ourselves in a place of discontent where we're lashing out like that eventually. And the first one is comparison. Comparison. Looking at someone's, you know, my family picture or someone's Instagram feed and you're looking at someone's highlight. And it always happens. I find someone's highlight when I'm in the middle of a crisis. And you instantly compare and think, if only I was them, things would be better. You compare. You look at your situation. You look at someone else's situation and determine how you feel about your own. That's comparison. And you may think, you know what? I'm not comparing. I notice, but I don't compare. Here's how you know. If you can't clap when someone else wins, if you can't celebrate someone else's really big moment, as big as you'd want them to, you're comparing you're minimizing your life, you're minimizing their life. And comparison will corrode the story that God wants to tell with your life. And the way I know this is when, when Lilia and I were trying to have kids. And I know this is a sensitive issue that not a lot of people talk about because it's just, it's hard. We tried for three years. Failed test, failed test, pregnancy test, schedule, just, just, just tried. And it was hard. Lilia had an ovary removed when she was young because of a cyst, and the other one was, had scar tissue all over it. And doctors looked at her at 16 and said, it'll probably be really hard for you to have kids, if at all. At 16, she probably didn't get the, the burden of that. But as a married couple who desperately wanted kids, we got it. And we were surrounded by couples who were telling us they were pregnant. And I said all the right things. But I wasn't celebrating. And I wasn't clapping. And I was comparing. And what I was starting to do was corrode the story that God wanted to tell with my life. Because as you saw in that picture, there's two kids. I don't know why we had so many. <laughs> and scientifically, I get it, but I, I just don't know why we had so many. But my comparing and not celebrating and not clapping was comparing and it was corroding the story that God wanted to tell with my life. And if I'm honest in those weakest moments, and if Lily is honest, we probably wondered if we should have ever got married because of what we were designed to do. Lily probably felt like a damaged good. He's, he's so great with kids, he wants kids, maybe he should be with someone else. I know she had those thoughts. And I know I wondered, maybe I should have married. I, we have the worst thoughts when we're alone. We think things we never thought we'd think because we're defensive, we're comparing, and we're isolated. And it all starts with comparing. I'm not trying to minimize your situation, but I'm telling you to like the post anyway. I'm telling you to clap when someone else wins. And I'm telling you to celebrate as big as you want them to because I believe God wants to promise you something. And it'll come. It'll feel like it takes forever, but it'll show up. And you're going to want people to celebrate the snot out of that moment. So I want you to do the same thing. Clap. Celebrate. Don't compare. Don't let it corrode your story because it's being written right now. 
Second thing is conflict. I'm going to talk to you about a three-year-old because I think it's something we've all seen happen. Before I had kids, I judged every parent who had a tantruming kid, and I just want to apologize. (laughs) I'm reaping what I've sown. (laughs) But Willow and how she responds to conflict, it's crazy. She loves the tantrum. It's her biggest weapon, right? And as a parent, as a rational human being, you try to negotiate with a tantruming child. Just take a deep breath. (gasps) Snot everywhere. It's just nuts to the point where I end up throwing a tantrum and then Lilia has to step in. But Willow tantrums, and it's about trivial things, right? But it's conflict in her life. They're big deals to her. Her Elsa underwear isn't clean. (laughs) Right? Elsa underwear is not clean. Her sippy cup is the wrong color. The helium balloon won't come back. Daddy won't let her have more than six munchkins, and mom doesn't let her have two. Like, it's just like she flips out. And if we look at it, it's easy to say, oh, kid, just snap out of it. But you and I are the same. It might not be bags of sugar. It might not be helium balloons. Maybe it is, and you love helium balloons. That's okay. (laughs) But it's probably something different. But you and I are the same. We tantrum. When we're given something less or different than what we expect, we throw tantrums. We may not roll around and drool all over ourselves. Maybe you do. We can talk later. (laughs) But inside, we're having a tantrum. We're throwing a fit. We're unable to be rationalized with. We don't want to take a deep breath. We want what we want, not what we got. We're throwing a tantrum. And here's the deal. When we expect everything in our life to be ideal, we turn it into an ordeal. Maybe it's our marriage. Maybe it's our career. Maybe it's our bank account. Whatever it is, if we expect it to be ideal, we make it an ordeal when it's not. I had a friend of mine who said it this way, when you and I expect to not suffer at all, we suffer a whole lot more. When you and I expect to not suffer at all, we suffer a whole lot more. Remember, Jesus promised problems. (laughs) But to rejoice because he's overcome the world. Conflict. With every tantrum we throw, with every tantrum my daughter throws, it's an opportunity for her to realize her capacity can't handle what she's being thrown. Every tantrum we throw, it's an opportunity to understand our capacity can't handle it. You know what that should do? Is point us to God. If you're throwing tantrums, if I'm throwing tantrums, it's because we're trying to have the capacity to handle something that only God can handle. When I was throwing a fit about our infertility, when I was throwing a fit about anything, when I was throwing a fit about my job, the money I have, whatever it is, I'm trying to make something happen that only God can make happen. So if you find yourself in a place where you're just tantruming to conflict, You might be trying to solve something that you need to bring to God to solve because you don't have the capacity to fix it. Here's the third thing that can put us in a place of discontentment. Comparison, conflict, and confusion. Next to it, you can write identity if you want. When we're confused about our identity, we're just, we're able to be discontent. We think we're here for us. We think we're here to make money. We think we're here to have a big house. We think we're here to win the race. And we get discontent because it's never enough. Because we're confused about who we are. Willow, I'll keep talking about Willow just because it's easy. When I call her over and say, I want to tell you a secret, and I whisper in her ear, I say, you're my favorite. She leaves that moment. (laughs) Or if I look at her and I stop and I say, that, you look really pretty today. Thank you, Daddy. She is different when she's reminded whose she is. She doesn't get consumed with who she is or she can know who she is because she's reminded about whose she is. And some of us in this room need to be reminded about whose we are. You're God's children. You may not feel like a child of God. You may not know you're a child of God, but I'm telling you that's who you are. And God is desperately looking for interactions where he can call you over, ask to tell you a secret, and tell you you're his favorite. And tell you he loves your outfit. You look great. Don't worry about that. I get that it's a mistake, but we're going to work through that together. I don't see that mistake. I see the blood of my son. It's already forgiven. How great is that? We could be in the middle of a miserable home, in the middle of flipping out in front of our family, and God looks straight down and doesn't see everything we hate about ourselves. He sees the blood of his son, Jesus, and he's reminded that you are his child. Christ's forgiven everything. But if we're confused about whose we are, we'll never truly know who we are. We'll run around in a rat race that can't be won. And we'll be discontent and we'll end up alone thinking things that we never would have thought if we were just sure about whose we are. You were a child 
of God. God wants to restore what's been lost. And here's the thing, right? I'm way over time already. I apologize in advance. Um, You and I in those moments of confusion, of conflict, of comparison, we've talked about how we end up running. We prioritize a relocation. We want to leave. And here's what I want to say to you. God will allow for a time of relocation, but he always prioritizes restoration. We prioritize the relocation and don't care if anything gets restored because it's easy to run. We have the capacity to run. We don't have the capacity for restoration all the time. So even though God might have allowed you to relocate, trust me when I say he's prioritizing and waiting for you to be willing to restore. He's a God of restoration. The first thing he wants to restore is our contentment in our life. I was going to use Jeremiah 29, 11, and I'm still going to. That talks about the plan and God saying, for I know the plans I have for you, plan for hope and a future. But if you read the context of that chapter, you realize in that moment when that promise is delivered, it's delivered to captives. Everybody say captives. In Israel's slavery in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar, which was not easy, they receive a promise about a hope and a future. Great, thanks. I'm in, I'm in prison. I'm a captive. I, I don't make any decisions for myself. Nothing's easy. And you're telling me you got a plan for a hope and a future. When? When? In that moment, in that letter that Jeremiah was bringing to those people, God said this. Before he said, I promise you a hope and a future, he said, while you're captives, while you're here for a time, build homes, plant gardens, Pray for your city because if it goes well with it, it'll go well with you. For a time will come where it will pass and I will find you. For I know the plans I have for you. Plan for a hope and a future. God's not always going to fix our circumstance like we want him to. But he has a plan. And when that Babylon season for you is over, you'll be reminded of that. But while you're in it, build homes, plant gardens, eat the fruit. Pray for your city, because when it goes well with it, it'll go well with you. Make the most of it, because it's not about your surroundings, it's about your God. And he's got a plan for you. And I know it's not easy to see right now. And there's three of us that are excited about it, so I'm good. (laughs) But in that moment, trust me when I say, God wants to restore something in you. And here's a little thing I wrote down, right? All too often, we pray to God and ask him to change our circumstances for us. But God is asking us to allow our circumstances to change us for him. And it's not an easy pill to swallow. I get that. But he has a plan. And it involves a hope and a future. Blessing, not cursing. Don't get consumed by the Babylon you're in. Make the most of the life you have because it's a wonderful, wonderful life. Verse 14 says, I will be found by you and will bring you back from captivity. Or some translations say, restore your fortunes. God wants to restore. There's three things we can do to partner with his mission of restoration, right? Three things. Again, another one through three and then I'll be done. First thing you and I can do in partnership with God's mission to restore our life and our our state of contentment is instead of comparing, we can praise him for what we have. We've got breath in our lungs. We've got a church family. We're here. What do we really have to complain about? Instead of remembering what was lost, remember what's left. Be proactive in finding things to praise him for because they're there. If we could take our eyes off the leaky roof and the broken windows and the the teachers that don't treat our kids right or whatever it is, if we could take our eyes off those things, we're aware that we have things that are praiseworthy. Philippians 4 says it this way. It says, Don't fret, don't worry. Instead of doing that, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. You can't change it anyway. You might not have the capacity to, so don't worry about it. Praise him for it and restore contentment in your life. Second thing, Don't let conflict distract you from your purpose. Don't let conflict distract you from your purpose. Everyone in here was created on purpose with a purpose. You may be like, well, what is it? What am I supposed to do with my life? What's the next 25 years going to look like? You're missing it. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, God says our purpose, long before we heard of Christ, he had plans on us for a glorious life. Part, say part. 
God's plan for our life is to play part in what's going on around us. In everything else that's happening, in everyone around us, you are a gift to someone in your immediate sphere of influence. You might not feel like a gift, you might not feel like you're worth anything, but let me tell you, you are a handmade sweater from grandma gift to someone in your community. You. I know that there's people in my life that need to hear my story and Lilia's story about how we prayed and begged for Willow. And then we got another one on accident. <laughs> but if I wasn't willing to share that story, or if we let ourselves in those moments of isolation, maybe separate, maybe go a different way, or maybe just let our marriage get polluted because of comparison and longing to be someone else, we would have never gotten an opportunity to tell the story that I hope gives someone hope in here today. You have the same opportunity if you'll stop comparing it and understand that God is writing something that isn't done yet. The discomfort you're in right now, it's a detour. It's not a destination. He's not going to leave you there. But you have got to understand that God wants to restore you and not be consumed by the conflict you're around. Don't listen to Mr. Potter. You are special. And someone desperately needs you to be special. Don't let conflict take you from your purpose. And the third thing, and last thing, and then we'll see one more clip and we'll get you out of here. We need to constantly pursue the right people. I work in an environment that's sales. And if you're in sales, you know that that can be very, very driven and just, I'm, what are you doing? When's the next deal coming? How much money? You failed this month. You stink. You stink. What are you doing? Do more. And I'm successful. Like, I don't get it. But it's just the nature of the business. That's why church community is so huge. Because a lot of us work in environments where people are consumed with what we're doing. But we need to prioritize being around the people that want to know how we're doing. You need people that care about your day. You need people that know your family. They know your struggles. They know you're good. They know you're bad. They're praying with you. They're believing in better. They're community. You need to chase those people. Don't get consumed by those that want to know what you're doing. Prioritize the ones that care about how you're doing. And I think this last clip really, really exemplifies how George lost track of the fact that he's surrounded by the right people. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, George! Merry Christmas, movie house! Merry Christmas, Emporium! Merry Christmas, you wonderful old Billy alone! to you in jail. Go on home. They're waiting for you. <laughs> Mary! 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 Well, hello, Mr. Bank Examiner. How are... Mr. Bailey, there's a deficit. I know, $8,000. George, I've got a little paper. I'll bet it's a warrant for my arrest. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. Merry Christmas. Reporters are... Where's Mary? Mary! Oh, look at this wonderful old drafty house. Mary! Mary! Mary, have you seen my wife? Mary, 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 Mary Daddy. Daddy. Kids, Pete. Kids, Janie, Janie, Tommy. Oh, let me look at you. Oh, I could eat you up. Where's your mother? So we're looking for you. With Uncle she... Billy. Zuzu, Zuzu, my little ginger snap, how do you feel? Fine. Not a smidge of temperature. Not a smidge of temperature. Ah, hallelujah. Hello. George. George, Mary. darling, where are you? George, darling, where are you? Oh, George. Oh, George. 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 Well, come on, George. Come on downstairs. Quick, they're on their way. All right. Come on. Come on in here now. Now you stand right over here by the tree. Right there. And don't move. Don't move. What's happening? Wow. Oh, I hear them coming now. George, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Who's going to come, Daddy? Who, Daddy? Come in, Uncle Billy. Everybody in here. George, you're going to come.
Mary did it, George. Mary did it. She told yes. some people you were in trouble and they scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask any questions, just that George in trouble and tell me you didn't like it spread like fair. Another run on the bank? Here you are, George. Merry Christmas. Cabled, you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. Oh. George, the richest man in town. I love that line that it ends on because it's not just monetarily that George was rich in that moment. The whole community came out to support him in a really desperate time. George was the richest man in town because the people that were around him cared about how he was doing. He realized that his community was invaluable. So he was the richest man in town in that moment. Sometimes you and I realize that we've lost something. We've lost our perspective. And when we realize that, to what extent are we willing to go in an effort to regain what we've lost? As a final thought. Philippians 4.13 is a verse that a lot of times is, is quoted to pump somebody up to do something physical. You know, whether it's, I can run a marathon because Philippians 4.13 says so. And it doesn't really say that. Um, what Philippians 4.13 is talking about is not really a physical feat. It's about maintaining the right perspective. If you read it, it says, I don't, reading from the message paraphrase, it's, this is Paul speaking, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much, with much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, Wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. It's not about climbing a mountain or running a race. It's about maintaining the right perspective in the world we live in. As we close, would you guys stand to your feet? I just want to pray with you, pray for you. You guys can put your notes away, bow your heads, close your eyes. There's a couple groups of folks I want to pray for real quick before we let you go. Obviously, I'm sure there's people in here that realize they've maybe lost some perspective. Maybe they've compared, maybe they let conflict cause tantrums in their soul and their spirit. 
Maybe they're confused about who they are. Whatever it is, you've lost perspective. You find yourself on the verge of snapping when you come home and treating the blessings in your life like burdens. I'm not here to judge you and tell you you should do better. I'm confident there's a lot of us in this place. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, if that's you, if you find yourself in a place of discontent for whatever reason, and you know you've lost perspective and you want to acknowledge that, one of the first things we need to do to regain what's lost is acknowledge we've lost it. So if you've lost your perspective, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you all over the room? If there's anything you need to hear in this moment as you raise your hand is that you are not alone. Take solace in that. And it's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay there, right? So God, thank you so much for acknowledged need. I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would restore contentment in the lives of these people. Encourage them in a way that only you can, God. In the moments of comparison, remind them of what's praiseworthy. Help them to understand that conflict might be reminding them that they're trying to do things that aren't in their capacity and they need to lean on you more. And convince them beyond a shadow of a doubt that they belong to you and you count them as special so that they can know whose they are before they ever try to figure out who they are. I thank you, Lord, that you are changing things on the inside of these people out. Whether they feel it or not, things are changing because of who you are. In Jesus' name. Lastly, before we dismiss, I don't want to not give you an opportunity to restore your relationship with God. If anything gets restored today and it's that, we're happy. God sent his son, Jesus. I talked about how God is a God of restoration, not relocation. The first thing he did to show that is send his son, Jesus, to come and die on a cross and be raised again so that one day we could put our hope and our trust in him so our relationship to God can be restored. Everything changes from that moment forward. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, you maybe have never made that decision before in your life. Maybe that relationship with God isn't restored, so this is all just information. Let this information be transformation because you understand whose you are. Every head's bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to count to three. Don't wait for someone near you to raise your hand so you can feel confident that you're doing the right thing. This is between you and God, and I believe you've been poked and prodded and spoke to all service long. If that's you on the count of three, raise your hand. I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to do anything silly. I just want to pray with you. On the count of three, one, two, three. Thank I see those hands. I see those hands in the front. Anybody else? I see that hand in the back. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Whether you know it or not, there's a party in heaven right now rejoicing because of your understanding. You need more and you're a child of God that needs that relationship restored. So put your hand on your heart if you made that decision. I just want to pray for you. God, thank you so much for acknowledged need. Thank you, Lord, that you desire different for our life than what we've experienced to this point. Thank you, Lord, that there are people in this place that heard from you. And as a result, they've been moved to make a decision and say, I need my relationship with God restored. I don't want to be in a place of discontentment anymore. I want to be content. I want to live Philippians 4.13, which says, no matter my circumstances, no matter the leaky roof, no matter the car, no matter the job, no matter the situation I find myself in, I can be content because of whose I am. I can find things to praise about. I can find things to, 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 to share with people that give them hope. And I'm no longer confused about whose I am. God, thank you that their names are written in the book of life and they can be different than they were when they walked in. I would encourage everyone that made that decision to write out a connection card. Let us know you did that so we can partner with you in this new phase of your life. Thank you so much for being here. Will you give it up for what God has done today? I believe he's changing lives. Amen.